hoping to get a team together to play in that particular golf tournament. If you're interested, the information I think is behind, oh, there it is, right behind me. And then you can also find it on our Facebook page, local Rowlet, Rotary page, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so today we are getting into the Word. Everybody open your Bible, say Word. We are in Acts chapter 17. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, and we are following now Paul and friends on the second missionary journey. And we came to see last week very, very clearly they knew their mission. Family, when you know your mission, and you know the one who is sending you is God, nothing can get in your way. And I mean nothing. And stuff will try to get in your way. I mean, there's going to be bears, there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be days of doubt. But I'm telling you, when you know who sent you and you know your mission, you are unstoppable. That is the best way to describe Paul and friends. They were unstoppable. They knew that God had called them to preach the gospel. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 10, that's a direct quote. God had called us to preach the gospel. When you have clarity, when it comes to your mission and your purpose of why you're on earth, nothing can get in your way or stop you. And we're going to see today things will try to stop you. They did undertake their mission. I'll bring up this map. Uh, thank you, Shelly. Uh, as you all remember, the second missionary journey started at Antioch. There was a sharp division between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas and John Mark sailed for Cyprus. Paul and Silas made their way north through the Sicilian gates all the way on up into Lystra. There, Timothy joined the missionary journey. I was thinking about... Oh, sorry about that. My mic's going to do that a couple of times today. Just get used to it. So... Um, I was thinking about Timothy today as we were dedicating these kids, because the scriptures tell us that the reason why Timothy was such a faithful follower of Christ is because he was discipled at home. And I just want to encourage you, parents, grandparents, disciple your kids, your grandkids. You have more time, you have more impact in their life than you realize. So they pick up Timothy, make their way all the way up to Troas, and as you remember, there at Troas, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, joined the missionary team, and in the night, in verse 9 of chapter 16, Paul had a vision, okay? There was a Macedonian man who was saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And so they took that as a word from God, they hopped on a boat, they went through Salmon Thrace over to Neapolis, and they hopped on what is called the Via Ignatia. It was a long Roman highway that connected a bunch of major cities. And the first city that they stop off at is at Philippi. What was their mission, family? To preach the gospel. So what did they do when they got to Philippi? They preached the gospel. They began by preaching the gospel at the synagogue, and we got to see the, or I'm sorry, not at the synagogue, at a local river. There was no synagogue there. But they began preaching the gospel, and we got to see the power of the gospel. We'll see them in a synagogue this morning. The power of the gospel. We saw it first in the life of Lydia, that purveyor of purple from Thyatira, who heard the gospel. God opened her heart, and she believed. She was baptized then in the Gangites River, along with her whole entire household. And then we saw the power of the gospel to deliver the slave girl who had the python spirit that was replaced by the Holy Spirit. She was in her right mind. And it was through that experience that a great mob dragged Paul and Silas through the streets, the magistrates condemning them, beating them publicly, flogging them, and then putting them into shackles and chains in the inner prison. But it was in that inner prison they had a divine appointment. Sometimes circumstances will be very, very difficult, and we'll be wondering, God, why are you putting me in this difficult circumstance? And chances are God has put you in that difficult circumstance so that you can be a bright, shining being beacon for Jesus. Okay? That may not seem like the medicine your soul needs right now, but that might be the reality. 
Because as they were in shackles and they were in stocks, they began to pray and they began to sing hymns in the midnight hour. I don't know what you do when you're in your midnight hour. Sometimes it is our deepest and most despondent moments, but I want to, I just from that passage from last week, I have been so encouraged that when I'm in this deep darkness, that is when we sing, that is when we pray. And you know what we got to see in the text? We got to see the shackles fall off, the, the, the stocks open, the earth shake, and hearts open. Sometimes it's the difficulties in this life. That's when our light shines the brightest. Fellow prisoners heard the gospel, and we got to see powerfully the gospel save the Roman jailer who rushed in thinking everybody had escaped. He had a light, and he falls before Paul and Silas, and he asks that, that wonderful question. That question, I pray, is on every single person's heart and mind on earth. What must I do to be saved? And that night, the Roman jailer and his whole household were saved and baptized. And as chapter 16 concludes, the magistrates humbly had to go back and ask kindly for Paul and Silas to leave. See, they had publicly tried two Roman citizens, which was illegal under Roman law. And so the magistrates were humbled. I just want to tell you, just encourage you, be careful who you persecute today. Because tomorrow you may just have to apologize. Did y'all catch that? <laughs> Be careful who you persecute today because you may have to apologize to them tomorrow. That's exactly what happened. Uh, go over to the end of chapter 16, if you could, Shelley, starting in verse 38. It says, the police reported these words to the magistrates. The words were Paul and Silas saying, we're not going to leave the prison until the magistrates come and talk to us. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So the magistrates were immediately like, oh no. Not only did we publicly uh, persecute these guys, but the Roman citizens, we now have a, have a problem with Rome. Paul and friends did not have, there was not their desire to bring down the Roman gavel on the, church, or the people at Philippi, but they wanted Philippi, the church, to be established. And so they came and they did what? Can you imagine how that went? Hey, uh, sorry for like stripping you out of your clothes and beating you with rods and uh, yeah, that whole jail thing. We apologize, and then they kindly asked them, literally asked them to leave. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. Paul, Silas, friends, they didn't have any issue. That was not their fight. Their only goal was that the church at Philippi would be established and left alone. So they went out of the prison, and they visited who? Lydia. You see that, that, that lifting up of Lydia? I love this. Sometimes people look at the scriptures and go, Paul, was, she, he was anti uh, women. He, he, he wanted to subjugate women, and I'm like, no, he didn't. He elevated them into leadership. The church was planted in Lydia's home at Philippi. In fact, later, the book of Philippians, written to the church at Philippi that was established here, highlights the wonderful work of Miss Lydia. And when they had seen the, what is that phrase? The brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We almost miss it. It's such a subtle note. But these individuals had now become family. A mixed and messy family at that, but unified in the gospel. I want to quote here from John Stott to add a little bit of uh, depth to this, this statement of brotherhood. It is touching to see that Luke ends his Philippian narrative to a reference to the brothers. Listen to this. The wealthy businesswoman, that is Lydia, uh, the exploited slave girl and the ro rough Roman jailer had been brought into brotherly and sisterly relationship with each other and with the rest of the church members. They all belong to the fellowship of Christ. Family, I want us to realize what's happening here in the church. We are a family. 
we're brothers and sisters, and sometimes the family that exists here is far more intimate um, and real than what happens even in our earthly families. That in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. And what's so great about that is we come together and we gather around, and the, the communion table is a perfect picture of it. We gather as broken people around broken bread and poured out Jesus, and we remember what Christ has done for us. We all look in on our salvation. And I'll tell you what, one of my favorite days of the week is Sunday. You know why? Because we get together as a family. And then I go through the week, and I'm plowing through the week, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get back to the family. The family of God here uh, on Sunday morning. Such a beautiful picture. And so they hop back on the Via Ignatia. They leave the city of Philippi. It's about an hour's drive today. If you're going from Philippi to Thessalonica, one of my friends, Taryn Dames, just did the tour. He was so kind enough to send me a, a little screenshot from his drive. This is him. He's going, hey, I'm on my way to Thessalonica. Just wanted to let you know. And so it took an hour uh, for him to drive from the ancient city of Philippi to Thessaloniki. Uh, it took Paul and friends about three days. They were traveling by foot. And so when we look at verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now when they had passed through two different cities, Ampilus, uh, Amphilius, uh, whatever that is, and Apollonia. I'm sure there's a proper pronunciation. I just don't know it. Uh, and so they passed through two cities. We don't know what they did there other than they probably stopped there. They're all about 30 miles apart, so they did about 30 miles a day. They would stop, and they'd do another 30 miles, they'd stop. They did another 30 miles, and they ended up at Thessalonica, as the text says. It says, where there was a synagogue, immediately perk up your ears, because as, as was the custom, as was the pattern, the gospel would be first preached where? The synagogue. And that makes sense. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Gentile Savior and the Savior of Israel, but he is first and foremost the Messiah of Israel. And so they would go into the synagogue proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Savior, and then would take the gospel out to the Gentiles. And so they end up in Thessalonica. It was a very metropolitan, busy city, a hub of commerce. It sat on a series of rivers that connected it to the Aegean Sea. So it was a massive trade port. Within the city of Thessalonica, there were many temples, many uh, shrines and idols to false gods, and also we see a synagogue. So there were enough Jewish people to warrant a formal synagogue. And so Paul goes into that synagogue and over three Saturdays preaches a series of messages. And we get a description of how he brought those messages and I think provides us a pretty good roadmap when it comes to us when we rep the Lord. Like when we represent the Lord, well, here we go. Verse 2. It says, when Paul went in, went in where? Where was he going into? The synagogue. Okay, as was his custom, again, his pattern to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. And on three Sabbath days, so that's three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. we got four key verbs that describe the missionary discussion or the sermons that are being brought by Paul. They rep, R-E-P-P, the Lord. First, they reasoned. Okay, that's a discussion. They opened the scriptures and they reasoned together. It was like, hey, let us reason together. Let us examine the scriptures together and see how Jesus fulfills 
the Old Testament promises. And so they explain, they unpack the Old Testament, just like I'm doing right now. I am explaining, I am expositing the text. They then proved, that is, they provided clear evidence to the reality of who Jesus is, and then they proclaimed that he is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior, that he had died on the cross, he had been risen from the dead, and he's alive, and that faith in him, there's life. And they are proclaiming this just as is proclaimed to you every single week. I think that is a fantastic roadmap when it comes to us taking the gospel to others. Okay, it's not just handing somebody a, a gospel track and then walking away. It's reasoning, it's explaining, it's proving, it's proclaiming. It takes time. And so over this three-Saturday period, there are those who hear the message. In fact, everybody who gathered at the synagogue was, was introduced. They reasoned together. The, the text was explained. It was proved. It was proclaimed. And there was an interesting response, a divided response. And you'll often see this response. There are those who will hear the message and they will believe, and there are those who will hear the message and they will not believe. And we see that in verse 4. It says, some of them were persuaded. Okay, so sometimes we look at that word and we're like, oh, they were persuaded. So if they could be persuaded to believe, they could be persuaded to not believe. But no, what that means is, is that they believe. They place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for some of us, we look at that as such a small little step. We're like, what's the big deal? Someone just needs to believe. It's a huge step. I mean, you literally have to go from, to, like, you have to recognize that everything that you have believed and hoped in and, like, lived for and maybe even was willing to die for is wrong. To then believe in the true living God that he has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and he's risen, and that there's true life in him, that's massive. And some of us look at it and we're like, it's such a small thing. Oh, it's a huge thing. And you know what? The only way that a person's going to believe, and we saw this in the life of Lydia, it's when God opens a person's heart. Because I'll tell you, when someone's got a closed heart, their fingers in their ears, no matter what you explain to them, no matter how you reason, no matter how you explain it, no matter how you proclaim it, they are going to reject it. As we see clearly, in the next verses, Acts 17, verses 5 through 8, some were persuaded, others were persuaded to anarchy. It says, but the Jews were jealous. Who is being referenced here? Those who rejected the message. And we see that what's driving them isn't theology. You often have people argue it's a theological issue. No, this is a jealousy issue. And we've seen persecution arise around the missionaries because of a couple of different emotions. One jealousy, other envy, some greed. The heart of the issue is jealousy. And so they take some wicked men of rabble. I like that, the wicked men of rabble. It sounds like a rap group. Yo, we're the wicked men of rabble. Oh, dibbidi-dibbidi-dabble. And basically what it's describing is a group of dudes that would hang out in the Agora or the gathering area, and they basically would wait for someone to pay them to start a riot. They were rioters. And so you got these rabble hanging out, and so the Jews go and they they get the rabble together. They set the city in an uproar. They attack the house of Jason. What did Jason do? All of a sudden we're introduced to this guy, Jason, and they're like attacking his house. Well, he did what Lydia did. His heart was open to the gospel, then he opened his home to the missionaries. 
And the church was planted at Jason's house. And so they go to Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas and Timothy and possibly Luke, and they want to bring them out to the crowd. They're not wanting to take them out to dinner. They're wanting to tear them apart. And so in verse 6, it says, And when they could not find them, that is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, probably they were, in, they were being hidden by the church. They dragged poor Jason. Jason's like, I'm just, I'm just a part. I accepted the message, but I'll tell you right now, when you accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a messenger too. Guilty by association. I, I like being guilty by association when it comes to Christ. Heck yeah, I'm a Christ follower. So they grab Jason, through, drag him through the cities. They're shouting, these men, they've turned the world upside down. They've come here also, and Jason has received them. Jason's like, well, not only that, I've received Jesus. I mean, it's way worse than you're accusing me of. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's no other king but Jesus. And the people in the city authorities, it says they were disturbed. That is, they were greatly concerned concerning these things, which leads to a concept I'm sure you have all heard of it, Ria Ia. Everybody say Ria Ia. So I was walking around the office this week, and I stopped off at Barb's office. I was like, hey, Barb, have you heard of the concept called Ria Ia? She's like, no, I've never heard of that. And then I went to Tyler's office. I was like, Tyler, you ever heard of the concept of Ria Ia? He goes, no, I've never heard of that. How do you spell it? And I explained it to him. And he goes online. He's Google searching it. He's like, it doesn't exist. You, you're just, what did, is Tyler in here? What did he say? I was trolling him. What is that? You ever heard that concept, trolling? I, was, I totally was because I made it up. RIA doesn't exist until this morning. RIA is an acronym, and basically what it stands for is the response. Okay, this is rooted all in jealousy. They first reject. Okay, so they reject the message. You bring this message of Jesus. The message is immediately rejected, followed by rejection is instigation of others. Okay, nobody likes to stand alone in rejection, so they go and get other people. They go and get the rabble, the, the rabble, you know those guys. They get them all together, okay? So they, they instigate others to get involved. Then they attack the messengers. Paul, Silas, Luke, not found. Let's take Jason and his household. So they drag them off. They exaggerate. You ever have someone do this, exaggerate something that they say you said or something you did? They're turning the whole world upside down. Are they really turning the whole world upside down? They're just preaching Jesus. Then they accuse falsely that they're speaking against Caesar. Not once ever do I believe Paul ever once spoke against Caesar. In fact, if I look at his writings, I see him often talking about us praying for those in leadership. We should kind of apply that as we tear down our president. I'm just saying. Um, attempt to condemn. That got a little personal. But we need, to, we need to be careful. We need to start praying for people who are in leadership as opposed to tearing them down. Please somebody amen that. Because I don't want that job. And I'll tell you, from a place of leadership, people tear me down all the time and say all kinds of awful stuff to me and about me. And I'm like, dude, you want to, here, here, here you go. <laughs> you want to do this? Try it on for a week. Because it's not what you think it is. Leadership is hard. But they accuse them of tearing down Caesar with no evidence, and then they can attempt to condemn him. I quote from uh, John Stott. He's kind of like my favorite author for the morning for whatever reason. Um, in particular, Paul and Silas were charged with what? Family, this was no small accusation. To say that they were speaking against Caesar was almost immediately a death sentence. In fact, it says it is hard to exaggerate the danger to which this exposed them for the very suggestion of treason against the emperor proved fatal to the accused. They were ready to have them put to death. 
re'i is a big deal. And so the text tells us in verse 9, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So basically, they had to pay. They had to bond themselves out. And the bond basically worked this way. If Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the rest, if they left, Jason would get his money back. So it didn't cost him his life. It just cost him in his pocketbook. But if they stayed, they would keep the money. And so the text tells us uh, that the brothers, verse 10, that is the brothers, the family. Isn't that cool? There's already a family at Thessalonica. The church is already established. And sometimes we get this in our mind that if one particular person is, is removed, then somehow the movement will stop. But the movement was never rooted in a single individual earthly person. It's always been rooted in Christ. It's unstoppable. Once it's established, it grows. And so it says in the scriptures that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And it's kind of heartbreaking because later Paul writes in the book of First and Second Thessalonians like he desired often to go and be at Thessal- uh, go to Thessalonica, but he was, he was kept from it. And he's probably kept from it because of the persecution there. It broke his heart. But the church was established. And so they take him down to Berea. They leave the Via Ignatia. Can you bring that map up for me, Shelley? They leave the Via Ignatia. They travel inland to the city of Berea. And it's such a small little narrative, but it packs a punch. Because ever since these words have been penned, every, every group of people who have read it have immediately resonated with it and gone, I want to be like them. Every faithful follower of Christ wants to be a Berean. Check this out. Verse 11, it says, well, let's go back to verse 10. Uh, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went where? So it's almost like they they leave Thessalonica on a Friday night under the threat of death. Saturday morning they arrive in Berea, they're like back at it again. And when I think of the courage and the endurance that these guys had, and then I'm like, ah, it's just so hard to walk across the street and engage my neighbor. I got to like walk. And I got to ring the doorbell. If they don't have it, if it's not working, I got to knock. That's, you know, it's a huge undertaking. When I, like, I think of like comparatively speaking, So they begin to preach the gospel, but in verse 11, we see there is a totally different atmosphere and a totally different heart and reception in the city of Berea. And as I read this, I'm like, I want to be a Berean. It says in verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those at Thessalonica. That word noble, it means open to the message than they were at Thessalonica. And their openness is seen in four very clear ways. They received the word with all what? eagerness and they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so many of them therefore what they believed with not a few greek women of high standing as well as men i'm going to call them i'm going to i'm going to call this the reeb response reeb i just figured i'm going to keep making up words rep misspelled rea doesn't exist neither does reeb but it does now We're going to call this the Reeb response. I'm going to call the Bereans a bunch of Reebers. Because the first thing they did is they received the word. What that means is they listened without prejudice or without bias. So often we bring our biases to the scripture. They just listened. 
They were like, you're talking about the Messiah. And you're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. We're open. Okay, keep talking. Then it says that they were eager to receive. That means with exceptional interest and willingness. And then they took the bold step of actually examining the scriptures for themselves. And for some reason, this one step seems to be the thing that is keeping so many Christians back. And so many in culture back. It's astounding to me how readily we are to receive something that we like hear on, like, I don't know, the History Channel. And people come up and they're like, I saw this thing on the History Channel. And so it's truth. Or I read it on the internet because that's just the bastion of truth in our culture, isn't it? I read this thing on the internet, or I heard this in this religions class, or I heard this one pastor say this, and then they'll say it, and I'm like, that's not even in there. And I'm like, have you examined the scriptures for yourself? Family, there's nothing hidden about Christianity. It's not hidden. It's not a hidden faith. It's not a secret faith. There's no like hidden framework behind the scenes that you got to pay extra to get. There's nothing that you'll find out later that is like the secret knowledge. It's not like fake faith. There's fake faiths out there where you got to basically pay to get to levels. And as you get to more and more levels, and all of a sudden you get to the top level and you realize not only did you waste all your money, but it's a, it's a fraud. You can examine this. You can see the clear evidence, the prophecy fulfilled. It can be tested, and it has been for thousands of years, and it has stood. They examined, and you know what happens when you receive the word, and you're eager to receive it, and you examine the scripture for yourself? You know what's going to happen? What's, what's going to happen to you? You're, yes, you're going to believe, and you're going to grow in your belief. Your faith is only going to be strengthened. That's what's so crazy about our faith. The more that we learn, the more that we grow in the scriptures, the more our faith grows. There is literally a direct correlation to the more that we examine and study the word of God and it permeates our life, our heart, our mind, our soul, the more we grow in our faith. The less we examine, the less we pour it into our heart, soul, mind, the less we grow in our faith. There's like a direct correlation. So these Rebers, Bereans, become the poster children of faith. In fact, I can't think of any greater compliment than someone walking up and going, hey, you're a Berean. I quote here from John Stott, who apparently is my favorite commentator uh, this morning. Uh, Ever since then, the adjective Berean has been applied to those who study the scriptures with impartiality and care. I can't think of anything better than to look out at you firewall and go, you're just a bunch of Bereans. You receive the word, you do it with eagerness, you examine the scriptures for yourself, man, and your faith grows. Don't just accept it because I say it. But there's always a but. You know, things are going great in Berea. But the persecution's always nipping at their heels. The text says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, it's not good news to them. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's fascinating. They're the ones that are bringing the conflict. They're talking about, oh, the whole world's being turned upside down and look at all this stuff. The city's being disturbed. Who's doing the disturbing? These guys. You ever have somebody who's just like a world of chaos? And they just bring chaos wherever they go and they blame everybody else for the chaos. And they're like, there's chaos here and there's chaos there and there's chaos there and there's chaos there. And you're like, well, the only consistent in that whole thing is you. 
I'm no expert. You said you had issues there. Uh Uh-huh. There. Uh Uh-huh. There. Uh Uh-huh. There. Uh Uh-huh. It might be you. And so they bring the chaos, but this time it becomes so intense that they literally have to get Paul out that night. It's like immediately, we got to get you out of here. So in verse 14, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so this is kind of how this breaks down. That day, they immediately take Paul from Berea, and they take him down to the sea. Okay, so they put him on a boat, and they sail all the way down to Athens. And then they send back message all the way back to Silas and Timothy, like, hey, Paul wants you down in Athens. They're like, okay. So they hop on a boat, and they're making their way down here. And Paul is going to be at Athens. And that's where we're going to open our Bible next week. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Acts chapter 17, where Paul is in the city of Athens. And we'll have some really cool pictures for you from Athens. We have got some great archaeological stuff to dig up, and we'll, we'll be looking at that next week. But before we get there, a few applications to take home with you. First, be a reeb. Somebody asks you, hey, what'd you learn about a firewall today? I'm supposed to be a reeb. Okie dokie. A reeb is somebody who receives the word, eager Eager reception, examines the scriptures for themselves and believes. Here's the deal, family. Everybody is talking about, like, how do I grow my Christian faith? Receive the word. Do it with a sense of eagerness. Sometimes we approach our faith with the excitement level of a third grader who is getting introduced to the times tables. You ever sat with a third grader and introduced them to their times tables? Is that an eager face? Is that described as eagerness? Sometimes we approach our faith like that new workout regimen at the gym. We're all pumped up and excited, get that first burst of lactic acid, and we're like, I'm never doing that again. It's a steady pull. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It is a steady, day after day, receiving the word, a sense of anticipation and eagerness because the God of all of creation wants to speak to you. It's examining the scriptures for ourselves. And as we do that steadily over a long period of time, guess what's going to happen? You're going to grow. Your faith will grow. Your faith should increase over time. It's God's word, combination of the Holy Spirit, circumstances, creates a mature believer and follower of Christ. And flowing from that, my encouragement is that we rep the Lord everywhere we go. Because as you grow in your scriptures, and you grow in your faith, there's going to be content to your message. And you're going to be able to reason with people. You know, some of our biggest hesitation as far as sharing the gospel is like, what do I say? I don't know what to say. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't know? And my thought is, then learn it. 
be able to walk somebody through the gospel, be able to start at John 3.16, be able to say, hey, here's the deal, God loves you, for God so loved you. I'm not saying this, the word does. The Bible says that sin separates us from God, and the wages of that sin is death, Romans 3.23. Then we were able to flip over to Romans 5.8, and we were able to say, God demonstrates his love, though. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we're able to flip over to Romans 10, 8, and 9. We're able to say that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he died for your sins, that you'll be saved. And then we'll be able to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be able to say, look, it's by grace that we are saved. It's not of works. And you'll be able to walk people through the scriptures. And you get to read them together. And then not only do you get to reason, but you get to explain it to them. And then you get to prove it. You get to show them empirical evidence. Like this is prophetic fulfillment in front of your eyes. And, you get to sh- and then you get to proclaim to them the message of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he's raised. Do you believe? The Bible says all who believe will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you'll be able to say, do you believe? The response will be mixed. Some people, their hearts will be open like Lydia's heart. What? He did that for me? Yeah, he did that for me. Some people's heart will be close to it. Our job is not the response. Our job is the message. That is our mission. And then finally, just understand, as you grow in your faith, as you're a reber, and as you are representing the Lord, you're going to face Rhea Ia. But face it with boldness. People are going to reject the message. People are going to mock the message. By the way, there's a lot of false caricatures about, about our faith. And so they anticipate you're one of those false caricatures. And it's going to take time to build relationships so, so people come to realize that you're not a false caricature, like you're a real believer. You love people and you love God. There are times when people will be instigated against you. They'll attack the messenger. They'll exaggerate the issues, you'll have people that will exaggerate stuff around you, accuse you falsely, attempt to condemn. What is your temptation when people do this to you? What's that? React, defend. I want to encourage you, you're actually blessed when this happens. Matthew chapter 5, I'll leave us with the words of Jesus, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you, blessed. Think. <laughs> Last time I was reviled, my thought wasn't, boy, I'm blessed. Um... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You know why you're blessed? Because there's this reward. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Take it as a compliment. How did they treat Jesus? They treated him to a cross. How are his followers going to be treated? Guilty by association. Can't think of a better association to be a part of. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your goodness and for for receptive hearts and minds. Please stir in us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Your word says that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'll be filled. We will be satisfied. We will be nourished. Please fill us with your word. 
If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you know in your heart of hearts you don't know Him. And in the quietness and in the heart, nobody else can see what's going on in there. You know. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. Please listen. The Bible clearly declares that God loves you. There's no doubt. He does. The greatest demonstration that He gave His Son to die for you. The Bible declares that sin separates you from God. And it's, it's not just the sins you've committed, and it's not just this laundry list of things you've done wrong. It's the fact that you are separated from Him. It, we are all separated. That is sin. You've lived your life that way. Don't die that way. The Bible declares that all who believe in Jesus, that He died on the cross for their sins, all who believe that He was buried and risen will, will be saved. And so if that's you, if you want to place your faith, you want to trust in Jesus as your Savior, to call out to Him and say, I believe in you. In the quietness of your heart, tell Him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for my sins on the cross. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen from the grave, and you are alive right now. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is you, and that is your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are forever a son or daughter of the living God, and nothing can pry you from his grip. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You are lavished in his love. Welcome to the family. Lord, so fill us with a passion, and a joy, and a courage, and an endurance, and a fire to take this message to the world. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all, let's stand together. Stretch. Y'all did fantastical. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good.